Please uh, remain standing, and if you would join me in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 and verse number 8. The word of the Lord. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You can be seated, and I would dismiss the children to Children's Church if they would like. They can go out this door and down the hallway to their class, and when we're done with our service here, you can go down and pick the kids up. Last spring, our church participated in, in uh, what is called the Secret Church event, and the theme of that event was the great imbalance. I uh, was impacted by the scriptural teaching about the Great Commission, in particular, that the Great Commission is not make as many disciples as possible somewhere. It's not. Probably most of you know the Great Commission from heart. Go into all the world and preach making disciples of every people. Not all Christians move somewhere and make everyone who lives there disciples. And that, that resonates with me, and I thought, that is an important aspect of the Great Commission. Every nation, every language, every people group coming together and having not much in common, but this in common. They're learners of Jesus. They're students. They're followers of Jesus Christ. I would say to you on that note that God is glorifying himself by making a people that is undeniably diverse. God is glorifying himself by making a people that is undeniably diverse. There might be times when your flesh feels uncomfortable in a fellowship with people who are so different from you. But God is glorifying himself by putting us in this room, knitting us together, and giving us one passion to praise him, even in our diversity. 
Go to all the nations and make disciples there. Revelation 5 is the culmination of that in verse 9. They sang a new song. I'm glad that in eternity we're going to still be writing songs about the glory of God. Revelation 5, there's a new one. And it goes like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they reign on the earth. We are in process. Jesus ascends and says, make disciples from all different kinds of people. And then in the end, they're going to come together, and they're going to have new songs all the time, and they're going to sing praise to God. And we are in that process. The heading in my Bible about this diversity united together in Christ is Jew and Gentile together. And as I mentioned last week, it's hard for us to understand just how divided those two people are, the Jews and the Gentiles. It's hard for us to relate. How can Jews and Gentiles, how can people, whatever you want to think about right now in this moment, who are radically different, be together? How can that be? The answer is one truth, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our King. So, the question is, what is the church about? Practically, what is Emmanuel about? What are we in the landscape of evangelicalism in central Wisconsin? What are we? I mean, what are we? Are we the church of this or the church of that? Are we the church that's known for this thing or that particular thing? I have several that I want to say clearly. All the stereotypes. What is Emmanuel? And I don't want to be the church of any of those things. And you don't want to be the church of any of those things. We would say in admission that what we want to be is the church where Christ is the blazing center of our existence. If Christ is to be the blazing center of our fellowship, of our community, if he is to be the tie that binds us together, then we have to know him truly, rightly. What place does Christ have here? Because, if I can just point back to history, the Reformation did not come from a need for people to find out about Christ. They knew about Christ. They had Christ in some role, just not the right role. They they confessed Christ's existence, but not confessed him correctly. So, If Christ is to be at the blazing center of who we are, then there are some things we have to state as true about Christ. So the 
The title for this sermon is Hope, the Tie That Binds Us Together. It's part two from last week. My plan is to give us a little bit of an overview of last week. I'll I'll run through the points and then to add two more to those. Now, this this is significant. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the huge transition in the, in the gospel of Romans. It is a transition out of doctrine, 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 into its application, application, right? Romans 12, 1. Therefore, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Offering yourself as a living sacrifice on the altar of God's praise. And then chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 describe Christianity. Not how we became Christian, but how we live in Christ. How we operate in this conversion in Christ Jesus. So, chapter 14 and 15, it talks a lot about the diversity that happens. Eating meat, pork, fish, whatever it is. What day do you get together on? talks about those things. But ultimately, do you notice with me that Romans 14 and 15 is not a list of instructions on how to be Christian? It's not. And that's made clear in this paragraph. Romans 14 and 15 is not about what preferences you should have. It's about Christ. We started to get hints of this. Look in chapter 15. Look at verse 2 and 3. So as we think about neighboring together and, and being in community together, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So we're thinking about discipleship and edification. For Christ didn't please himself. Look at verse 6 and 7. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Verse 7 is the theme of this paragraph. Christ, the hope of Jew and Gentile. Christ, the tie that binds us together in hope. So the matter for us today is to see how do we do Christianity? How do we do Christianity? Romans 12. Right? Therefore, by the mercy of God. How do we do the Christian life? That's what we're talking about here in Romans 15. All right. So let me give you a couple of review points. The first that we saw in verse 9 through 12, the whole thing reminds us of the transfigured Christ. You know the account of the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus takes his close disciples. He goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. There the law and the prophets testify that Jesus is what it's all about. The law and the prophets testify that Jesus is what it's all about. And that's what we're seeing here in Romans 15. Jesus is what it's all about. He doesn't say, now regarding your diet, you should do this. And regarding what day you meet, you should do this. He doesn't say that. He says, 
I know there's going to be some frustration because you'll think differently about stuff, but the solution is how you do the Christian life. Jesus, the transfigured Christ, I read earlier in the opening of our service about the road to Emmaus. The resurrected Christ meets with some of his disciples and they're bewildered, they're perplexed, they have small faith. And they don't even know who Jesus is until later. Their eyes are open. And they say, oh, now we know everything he was talking to us about, he was showing us how all scripture relates to him. That's what Jesus taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus, that all of Scripture accords to Christ. He is the transfigured Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, someone else building upon it. Let everyone take care how he builds. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. That speaks to my question, what is Emmanuel? Is Emmanuel the this church? Is Emmanuel the, you know, the program church? Is Emmanuel the laid-back church? Is Emmanuel the formal church? Is Emmanuel the music church? Other foundation can't be laid than that Christ is the foundation. Emmanuel has to be the Christ church. Secondly, we see here in verse number 9, the triumphant Christ. Therefore I will appraise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's a cross-reference. It's a quote from Psalm, eight, uh, Psalm 18, verse 4. David. <laughs> David's sure he's going to die. I mean, he is sure he's going to die. He says things like this. The chains of death bound me up. In distress I called to the Lord. And when I cried, you heard me. You delivered me. You intervened. That's the passage where he talks about smoke coming out of God's nostrils. And when God spoke, the foundation of the earth shook. And David says, after seeing Christ triumph for him, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing of your name. Number three, we saw last week the gracious and merciful Savior. And just look at verse 10. Chapter 15, verse 10. I I hope that you can see the grace and mercy of verse 10. Rejoice, Gentiles, with his people. Jew and Gentile together. Mercy, a stiff-necked people who rejected the Messiah who had come from God, and grace, a people who were not a people now being called his people. When Jesus was introduced as a baby incarnate, The priest Zechariah said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who performs the mercy promised to our fathers and remembers his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, grace and mercy in Christ. Number four, we saw last time the faithful Christ. Verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. The faithful Christ. That's taken from Psalm 117. We see the reason in Psalm 117 why this cross-reference is used. What, What is this pointing to? Psalm 117 says this. Great is his steadfast love for us and the 
faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. In fellowship with each other, one of the reasons our preferences become points of debate is because we're concerned for each other. That's true. Sometimes we argue because we care. (laughs) Sometimes I'm concerned that you might be living a little bit licentiously because you're taking a liberty that I don't feel exists. And so I want to come and defend you, protect you from offending God. Sometimes you don't have the liberty. There are no liberties. And I want to come and protect you from a gospel-less existence. Like, yes, Christ, yeah, yeah, but... And so... Sometimes we debate our preferences because we care. What are we caring about? That our very brothers and sisters might fall out of good standing with God. Maybe you've never said it that way. Maybe you never had a debate with someone who uses a liberty and said, but I'm concerned that God's going to become displeased with you. But in fact, that's probably the reason you feel the need to fix them. It's probably not. Friends, I just think this of you. It's probably not because you think that you're the standard of perfection and everyone should conform. It's probably not that. It's probably out of a genuine interest in their walk with your God. The problem is Christ is faithful. Great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise him. Remember last week I I talked about how we probably have this in common, that spiritually our zeal has certain ebb and flow. And there are moments when it's low when we're tempted to think God can't put up with this. And Paul says, I know you're going to sometimes be tempted to measure your worth by your standards. And so I'm going to use this cross-reference back to Psalm 117. Great is his steadfast love. Praise him. That was number four last week. Today, number five, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul cites this well-known Messiah promise. From Isaiah 11, verse 10, saying he will rule the nations. Gentiles are going to look to the Jewish Messiah and have hope. He says this Messiah is a Jewish Messiah in that 
he came from Jesse. Now, the, the language is the root of Jesse will come. Uh, that's a little confusing for us because when we think about root, we think about the thing everything else comes from, right? But actually, it's going to be a beautiful word picture. Now, picture yourself in a very arid, agrarian culture like Palestine. So it's dry and stuff dies quickly. And what you can see is gone. You go, that's over. But they had hope that root life would return and bear fruit again later. That's the beauty of this language. Could you say that Jesus Christ brought about Jesse? Sure, you could. But that's not necessarily the point either of Romans or of Isaiah. Instead, when you looked at the house of David, it looked over. But there was something beneath the surface, that being a promise. And life was going to come from that promise. The promised Christ, the root of Jesse, this great king, the root isn't referring necessarily to the root itself, but the language we would use for root would be more like a sprout. Have you ever seen a picture of a stump? A tree had been cut down, and somehow there's a small sapling growing in the middle of that stump. Have you ever seen a picture like that? That's kind of the word picture of this. Like, Jesse's hope is gone without the sprout. But the promise meant that the Messiah was coming. It says this, the root of Jesse will arise and rule over uh, the Gentiles, but it's a reference to the nations. The root of Jesse will arise and rule over the nations. The mighty king, not a tyrant, but someone the nations hope in. They look to this Messiah and say, yes, finally, all of our needs are met there. Now, Listen, we could Christianize this, right? We could. I could say to you, hope in Christ. And you would say, oh, that's a good word. Okay, are we done? But let's apply that. Hope in Christ. And then you find out that one of your close friends left early on Sunday morning to drive over to Green Bay to go to the Packer game. And you say to your good friend, that, that could be idolatry. You might be worshiping other gods by choosing to travel and get there early instead of being in the assembly of God's people. Don't forsake that assembly, you might say. And and the text says, nations, hope in Christ. Oh, oh, right. So how does that apply to the Packer game? His steadfast faithfulness endures our choices. The Gentiles will hope. I, I just I want to remind you what all that means. 
hope, trust, our faith in this root of Jesse. Sola, only. I don't know. I don't know, friends. I mean, only hoping in Christ. You only hoped in the chair when you sat down. Did anyone fortify their seat when they sat down? Anyone bring your TIG welder? And just, you know, triangle is the strongest shape. So you brace that thing up with some triangle, some angle iron. Like, okay, now I trust this chair and my welds and the gauge of steel I used. No one did that, right? Because you hoped in the chair alone. You might be nervous right now thinking about that. The Gentile mission of the early church, Mount says, was a fulfillment of this prophecy. The root will spring up from the line of Jesse. And you you get halfway through the book of Acts and you're like, that's exactly what's happening. Listen to Acts 15. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. There are nations hoping in Jesus. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, because you see, it had already been written, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild the ruins, and I will restore it. The stump is going to have a sprout, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. It seemed that hope was dashed. From man's perspective, you look at the Messiah coming. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Oh, I shared with you last week, in their insolent hearts, they are presented with a choice. Barabbas or Jesus? Someone's getting crucified. And their chooser said, make it Jesus. Hope seemed dashed. But see, we've already been through this doctrine. Romans 11. As it regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. But as it regards God's election, they are beloved because of their forefathers. Because, you see, it's about God. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Our participation. Our hope. So I wonder if if this word can protect you from the next. Um, do you remember way back when we started chapter 14, I, I told you what, what the word doubtful disputing means? A doubtful dispute. A doubtful dispute is that long drawn out argument that's probably never gonna come to a, an agreement. It's, a doubtful dispute is the way we say, 
well, let's just agree to disagree. Okay, that's usually the gracious conclusion of a doubtful dispute argument. Like, you know, should a Christian drink alcohol? You can, you can have long, long conversations about the pros and cons. But you're probably never going to come to a hard and fast biblical agreement about doubtful disputes. So the question is, should we have these arguments to try to help people walk with God better? Or should we hope in Christ? And I know the problem. I get it. I know the problem. Again, it's zeal. Hoping in Christ. Adoring Christ. Treasuring Christ. Loving his church. Seeing ourselves as his bride. And saying, I just want the other members of the bride to live up to their calling. I know, I know. And that's what makes this issue so delicate is because your heart is not necessarily in the wrong place, but maybe your hope is in the wrong place. Maybe mine is. I get it. Christ is their hope. They're going to get to heaven because of Christ. But we as a church need to improve the way they behave. That's Christ too. That's Christ too. You see, it's Philippians. It's Philippians. It's the Bible. He who began the work of conversion completes the work of conversion. He doesn't give you the keys to the car and say, I hope you don't crash. He who began the work completes the work. Christ, the hope of Jew and Gentile. Number five, I'm sorry, number uh, six. Our joy and peace. Pastor Will appropriately prayed for peace and confessed that our prayer to the Father for peace is founded in truth. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. (laughs) Paul gets to the end of this section and just prays for us. Just prays for us. God is a God of hope. And if, as in the previous point, We of the nations hope in him. What follows is joy and peace in believing. A prayer wish that God would fill the believers at Rome with joy and peace. I mean, okay, so friends, there are just a couple things we should pray for each other all the time. All the time. I've shared with you before that when you come to church, (laughs) I think that you should pray, Father, open opportunities for me to provoke my fellow Christians to love and good works. 
That's Hebrews 10. I also think that we should pray for each other's joy. I think we should pray for each other's joy. Lord, Lord, that, that my friend's joy would abound, right? Why is joy so important for a Christian? Why is joy so important for a Christian? Well, the truth is, joy is synonymous with worship, isn't it? Right? Out of the, out of the confession of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if there's joy in the heart, the mouth worships, I think. And worship is very important to God. John 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, God is seeking worshipers. In James, it says that God yearns jealously over the spirit he's breathed in us, the capacity to worship. Praying for each other's joy is praying that God be praised. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as we believe in him. Joy and peace are dashed when our hope sets on anything but him. It's just dashed. we don't hope in God, our hope is in vain. And we are, if we're not hoping in resurrection, of all people, most miserable. We're preaching about joy and peace but don't have any. That's miserable. It's God who provides the joy and peace as we continue to believe in him. Listen, listen, just let me, let me unpack verse 13. The joy and peace is given by the God of all hope. So may the God of hope give you joy and peace. We don't manufacture it. We can't can't build joy and peace. That's one of the problems with some attempts to do church. It's to build excitement, but that's not the same as joy. Second, our joy and peace remain in our believing. Joy limps when we stop believing in the God of hope. In this context, Romans 14 and 15, right? We're we're putting verse 13 into verse 14 and chapter 14 and 15. In this context, about these doubtful disputes, uh, just flip back to Romans 14. As for the one weak in faith, welcome him, not to quarrel over opinions. Opinions, we all have them. (laughs) We all think that ours are better. Opinions. When our opinions become some sort of confidence that we are living in a way that pleases God, we will lose joy. Let me try to make a correlation. Have you ever, have you ever seen um, 
the, the tragic pattern of people who the world says should have every reason to be happy who sometimes take their own lives in suicide. I remember a lot of that conversation back when Robin Williams took his life, actor, renowned, famous, wealthy. And he took his life. And you think, how could someone who has so much live in such a joyless despair? Well, let, me, let me talk about Christians. How could sometimes Christians who have so many mature preferences, so many safeguards to keep them from offending God, how could that Christian not have joy? Yet, that happens. If, if we fall guilty of putting our confidence in how well we are keeping Christian rule, whatever that might be, I don't think joy is going to survive that. May the God of hope fill us up with joy and peace as we look to him for our substance. And look now, believing. Because if I am there, if I am there, you're like, okay, as long as I keep believing, come on, believer. Like, oh man, my believer tank is only at one-eighth of a tank. I really need a gas station here. I hope they sing my favorite song. If we end there, you got a lot of work to do. You got to keep on believing. But the verse doesn't end there. <laughs> Isn't that great? Our believing is made possible. Our endurance and perseverance is guaranteed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Living in us, sealing us like an engagement ring that our union with Christ is a guarantee. May the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace. As long as you're believing, oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit does that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. It will be a theme of our eternal praise that the very thing he commanded us to do, which we couldn't do, he did. And that is not just your repentance. That is our Christianity. How do we do Christianity? By taking a yoke that is light and easy. Not burdensome over opinion, but the yoke of Christ himself. Therefore, the Christian life is God's empowering presence. The Christian life is supernatural life. 
let's, let's be careful that we don't try to describe the Christian life as something we get better at. I understand progressive sanctification. But the Christian life is supernatural. Just like regeneration. It comes from above. Colossians 1, Philippians 1, tell us that Christ in us is the hope of glory. So at this point, Paul starts to close his argument. This is the end of this paragraph. In some ways, we could call it the end of the chapter. Christ has made it clear that this gospel he's preaching reveals the righteousness of God. That it proclaims that sinners are justified by faith alone. That new morality is Christ's righteousness at work in us. To this, Cranfield says, the existence of this hope in men is no human possibility but the creation of the Spirit of God. If Christ is to be the blazing center, then we have to know him truly. The transfigured Christ. Law and the prophets say he is the center. The triumphant Christ. The chains of death bound me and then smoke and fire came from your mouth and you delivered me. The faithful Christ. He is steadfast in his love. Gracious and merciful. Those who have heard and rejected still being saved. Those who have never heard and were outside of covenant promise being made a people, the people of God. Christ, the promise of salvation to the nations. And for us as a church, our joy and our peace. Let me read Ephesians 2. Now in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments that are expressed in ordinances so that Christ might create in himself one new man in place of two, making peace. And Christ reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the best summary I can give to Romans 14 and 15. There's diversity. There's diversity in your background. And we're all over the place. There's diversity in your opinions and your preferences, your personalities. There's diversity. All sorts of ways. But any hostility that could have existed over those issues is gone in Christ. Any hostility 
is out of the way because he's made us both one in Christ. Last word. Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that in testing you can discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, even what is perfect. What is the Christian life? Hope in God, joy and peace, as we believe, having believed by the Holy Spirit. If that's the Christian life, then we can't possibly be anything but a church about Christ. By God's grace, that'll continue to be the case. We don't want to be the church about drums or the church about programs. By God's grace, let's continue to hope in God, joy and peace, in believing, trusting in God alone. Sola Christus. Only. Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us this this passage of scripture, knowing that we needed to be delivered from our weaknesses, our ailments, our prides, our debating, our fears, and love for each other, we desire to shape each other and sometimes we're guilty of desiring to shape disciples to our opinions because we find them more admirable, more worshipful. But God, my prayer is that as your word works in us, we would put all of our hope in you. That we would see Christ truly. And that our perseverance would be rooted in him. In Christ Jesus' name.